Welcome to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast was created by the CBLDF as part of our ongoing educational program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, we speak to Fred Van Linty, author, raconteur, and comics historian. I spoke to Fred about the early days of comic censorship, Frederick Wortham, and the birth of the Comics Code Authority. For more information about the history of comic censorship and the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, please visit us at cbldf.org. If you have any comments or questions about this podcast, please write us an email at info at cbldf.org. And if you enjoy it, please subscribe and encourage your friends to subscribe. We're going to try and release these bi-monthly. They should include new interviews, archival material, uh, public presentations that we do at conventions and other shows, and censorship news as it happens. And uh, with that, I'm going to throw to Fred Van Linty, and we can kick off our inaugural podcast. Enjoy. Thanks a lot. Uh, Fred, thanks for joining us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, my name is Fred Van Lente. Uh, I'm a comics writer, at least a writer of mostly comics. Uh, currently writing the titles Archer and Armstrong for Valiant, Magnus Robot Fighter for Dynamite, Conan the Avenger, and uh, the upcoming Resurrectionists for Dark Horse. And I'm also known for having done Marvel Zombies, Action Philosophers, Taskmaster, X-Men Noir, Complex History of Comics, which I presume we'll get to today. Absolutely. And uh, many other fine, fine, funny books, obscure and famous. The uh, the comic book history of comics, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, is reprinting in our free Comic Book Day book, uh, a segment of that. Um, one chapter. Know? One chapter, yeah, which is the history of the comics code, starting with Seduction of the Innocent. Can you talk a little bit about where your research started with regards to that story? When you're talking about the comic censorship in the middle of the 20th century, you, you can't lose sight of the fact that comics were unique in 20th century pop culture and that they were one of the few products to be marketed directly as children for children to buy. Um, people in the, that era did not really think of children as consumers in the way that we certainly take that for granted today. Uh, generally speaking, parents would buy stuff for kids. And so a lot of parents uh, found that sphere... Uh, really frightening and threatening because it allowed young children to go out uh, with autonomy and buy things and get culture on their own. So uh, really, once comics started being popularized or really took off with Superman in 38, you know, you you had a backlash by educators and uh, parents, but it wasn't until Frederick Wortham came along in the mid to late 40s that you had both a a quote-unquote expert, a psychiatrist, uh, someone who claimed to have case studies backing him up, uh, sort of a voice of authority. And, and uh, you know, for the patriarchal 50s, he was also a man. Prior to that, most of the people protesting comics were uh, mothers and, and teachers, a lot of whom were, were women. So you had, a, you had a male expert showing up with his uh, Hollywood perfect German accent um, denouncing comics, and uh, uh, that really gave the movement a lot of oof that it didn't have before. 
the other person that started the ball rolling in 1940, an article by Sterling North, a national disgrace. Uh, it was in the Chicago Daily News, and it went uh, it went viral or whatever the the equivalent of that is in 1940. Sure. sure. But it was also a very patriarchal kind of finger wag. Right. And you had uh, uh, Robert Warstow, I believe the name, the, the guy's name was, who was the editor of Commentary, which was a very um, influential left-wing journal at the time, uh, also denounced it. But he he didn't have Wortham's, neither of those guys really had Wortham's flair for the dramatic. No, Sterling uh, North, he, he had kind of like a grandfatherly tone, um, but right. Wortham, absolutely, he was kind of the a Hollywood archetype of a... Uh, of a psychiatrist with the accent and the suits and the little tiny glasses. Right. And, and unlike those two guys, uh, I believe Sterling North was a, was a journalist, right? I believe a, so. A pundit, as we would say today, Wortham, you know, was, had the veneer of science and that he had, he claimed to have case studies from his clinic in Harlem. You know, the, the, the case studies were the classic example of, sort of selective reasoning in that his logic, or at least the way he described his logic, was that while interviewing uh, child criminals and kids, you know, accused of quote-unquote juvenile delinquency, uh, a wonderful 50s term that I'm glad is not really uh, <laughs> survived in the 21st century, uh, you know, he claimed that they loved comics, they particularly loved crime comics. Um, you know, he didn't bother to mention that all kids read comics, you know, a huge... You know, surveys in 47 showed it was, you know, above 90th in the low 90s, um, this being before TV and, you know, movies well, generally being a thing only on the weekends. And kids being a very broad term. I mean, it also included right. GIs up into their early 20s, and it was a, an enormous right. swath of the population. Red comics, yeah. Not not in the 90 percentile, but once you got older, that dropped down to the 70s and 80s, but still 70s and 80s is pretty amazing. I, I forget the statistic, but the majority of periodicals and literature being sold at PXs throughout World War II were comics. I forget yes. the exact number, but it was yeah. a huge amount. It's three to one, five to one. And that that's interesting because that statistic actually comes from a book called uh, Sex and Death. It was a very famous uh, autopsy of American popular culture. And, uh, the, and you know, it was a nut, yet another comics screed. Right. comics screed. That was not... that. That, that statistic was not offered in a, you know, a positive, <laughs> right. positive fashion. Worth among like these other guys had science and quote unquote science behind him. So he, he, he was a voice of authority, you know, I mean, Wortham was a very interesting guy. He was a leftist. He was a, uh, believe in Adorno and the Frankfurt school of cultural criticism to him, uh, his Lafarge clinic. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Where all these quote unquote case studies from, as I said, was in Harlem. It was free, and the staff and and ninety percent of the patients were all African American. So it was one of the, if not the first, free psychiatric clinic in an African American neighborhood catering African American. So most of the folks, most of the kids that Wortham was talking about that these case studies came from, uh, were black, and he didn't, you know, share this with the public. Um, I I think probably wisely because he wanted this to be seen as a as a um, a a wide strata of American youth. These case studies. Sure. Uh, when if he if he did say something, I'm sure it would have been reduced by the media, particularly by the comics industry, as as being a quote unquote black problem as opposed to a, a universal problem. I, I I bring that up only to sort of show how cherry picking 
Wortham's uh, methodology was. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, a number of things to that. We've also found now, due to uh, Carol Tilley's kind of diligent research into it, is that he just completely made up, I mean, falsified research right. in, in a lot of cases. Right. But also, he, he wasn't an interesting figure. I mean, he was one of the key witnesses or key uh, figures in Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Speaking to the desegregation of schools. Arguing for the desegregation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just make that clear. He was a hero in that case. But comics people think of Wortham as this kind of right wing, you know, Fox News type sort of equivalent figure, or uh, you know, some kind of a prude. When really he was a a prude of the left who saw the who saw comics publishers as a as as predatory capitalists right. exploiting uh, uneducated and poor. But had families. had he never looked at a comic book he really would have been a heroic figure of the 20th century sure wortham first attempted to get comics banned in new york state but the bill that he championed that was passed got vetoed by uh, governor thomas dewey of dewey beats truman fame and uh, on first amendment grounds so uh once he sort of failed with the legislature he ended up compiling all of his writings, anti-comics writings, into a book called Seduction of the Innocent that was a book of the month club selection and, and just a massive bestseller. Due in no small part, I'm sure, to the gory the gory uh, and quote-unquote sexy uh, panels that were of, from comics that were sort of produced in the book um, as sort of lured illustrations. Uh, and, and, and we should definitely take a... You know, not not that not that we would ever promote censorship either on a comic legal defense fund podcast or in general, anyway. But uh, you know, a lot of these comics did not help themselves by being really trashy and gory and bloody. And while many of them, particularly the crime does not pay comics, were aimed at a slightly older audience, and the the readership surveys, you know, show that largely adults were reading these. They they the publishers certainly did not care that they were being published for kids and being distributed to kids, and a lot of them were were even today I think would have been borderline unacceptable. I don't think very many parents would want I don't I don't think very many 2014 parents would want their kids looking at these comics, but you know, the the reaction to the the way to solve that problem was not, you know, massive witch hunt. <laughs> right. <laughs> witch hunt is never the solution, friends. It was uh it was definitely easy to cherry pick cherry pick lurid images. Exactly. Yeah. Um but the the resulting furor was was beyond the pale. It was it was far past what the the images e- even at the time. I mean, they I were had a, I had an academic email me or a grad student email me a couple month or two ago who's who's organizing a uh a list of all the the known public comic book burnings in the United States mm-hmm. uh, during this period, and he's got, his list is he's got like 120 or something like that. It's a fairly extensive list. And yeah, I've seen that list. He was emailing me to find out if I knew about any others. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't really keep track of those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, it's it's insane. It's a lot of Catholic youth groups at the yeah. time, and yeah, a lot, of, a lot of Girl Scout troops. Yep. The end result was this Senate hearing that was the subcommittee on juvenile delinquency, often erroneously referred to as the Kefauver hearings um, in comic circles, just because Kefauver, although he was on the committee, um, 
Congress had shifted. I, I believe he was a Democrat, and the power and the Senate got taken over by the Republicans in the midterm. So it was actually Hendrickson, who was Republican, I'm pretty sure, from New Jersey, who was actually the chair of the committee. Keith Alver uh, is known because he ran the televised hearings against the mafia earlier in the decade. And so, you know, he really wanted to be vice president. Um, he really wanted to be, uh, and he did end up being uh, Adlai Stevenson's vice presidential running mate, if I remember remembering that correctly, when he ran against Eisenhower and got destroyed. <laughs> so clearly these comics hearings did not help them very much. You know, so they were going to try to televise the hearings and they actually relocated the Senate subcommittee to New York City for a day um, to hold these anti-comics hearings. The anti-comics hearings probably would have been a much bigger deal, even more than they were, if not for the fact that the exact same day uh, Joe McCarthy was having his House on american Activities Committee meeting in Washington and that was also televised. Well, and the these hearings were also, uh, you know, they've they've become famous for the, the Wortham uh, statements, but they were part of a right. larger, you know, juvenile delinquency investigation, right? Which in itself was kind of a witch hunt. Just kind of there right. was an assumption that there was a surge of juvenile delinquency, but it was a lot of uh, hysteria and, and and panic. No, I mean the subcommittee was traveling around the country, sort of having these hearings, and because the comic book industry was. Situated in New York, and Wortham was in New York. They went to Foley Square, the courthouse in Manhattan, and uh, and held them there, which is kind of ironic when you think about it, because they didn't really bother to invite anyone from the comics industry to to appear in the, for the hearings. I mean, Wortham was clearly the star, and Wortham was very uh, politically connected. Uh, however, one publisher did speak, and that was William and Gaines, who published EC Comics and Tales from the Crypt, and... Um, the Haunt of Fear, Crime Suspense Stories, and Weird Science, and a lot of great uh, anthology comics that were ex were extremely gory, but also extremely well-drawn and, and extremely funny, and certainly by the standards of the time, much more literary than the average, um, you know. I think by the standards of, of any time, a lot of those hold up incredibly well. A lot of them hold up really well. I would argue some of them. <laughs> a lot well, of those we consider classics down. But, he he but, published a lot of comics. I think his hit to miss ratio was pretty high. It was. It was. And, and we need. We should definitely not forget Mad Magazine that also, excuse me, Mad, Mad the comic book that started out, you know, largely at the same time. Now, right. now Wortham was a bit of a hothead at that point in his life and he had he demanded that to to be seen by the by the uh the the subcommittee uh, which they agreed to they actually put him on right after frederick wortham who un unleashed his his usual salvo against the comics industry referring to them as fascists and racists and and uh sexists and and, and many of these things are true, but we won't we won't we won't focus on the on the true parts. We're we're talking more about the sensationalistic aspects of comic books being a direct cause of juvenile of uh, of crime of of kill. I mean, we shouldn't call it juvenile delinquency, but what they were worried about was children committing crimes, right? Heinous crimes, heinous crimes, murder, rape, uh, robbery, arson, all that fun stuff. Let's uh, let's let's break for one second and uh, and listen to Wortham at the at the hearings. I have a clip here. Cool. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. 
So that was Frederick Wortham discussing discussing juvenile delinquency. Did you read Seduction of the Innocent? You used to be able to find it online. Somebody uploaded it all the way somewhere uh, just because the, the, the book tends to get stolen out of any public library or academic library you try to look for it. It's a tough read because it is very much a screed. It is very much the same thing being said over and over and over again. So I read I read significant chunks of it. The thesis of the book is is put forward in in the first few pages, and then it's one lurid story of crime, usually almost always committed by children against other children, sometimes against their parents after the other. Um, and weird insinuations about you know the sexuality of Batman and Wonder Woman. Uh, it's pretty dull stuff, really. I mean, for something that's about, you know, Superman being a fascist, it's, it's surprisingly boring. Describing the the various theories that he put forward are very funny. Batman and Robin having a, uh, a pedophilic dream, relationship. The, the wish dream of two homosexuals living together is the famous yes. story. How Dick Grayson and, Bat- and Bruce Wayne's uh, relationship is described. And uh, when you go through all of these things, it's very funny to discuss. Reading it is a slog. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the The strange thing about Wortham's argument was his it was his conclusion not that horror comics were bad or crime comics were bad, but that all comics, because they were comics, were bad. Right. Um, he attacks them just the he talks he attacks them from every conceivable angle. He says that romance comics cause teenage pregnancy. You know, it's that superhero comics are fascist, uh, that the funny animal characters are too violent because they're hitting each other with malice and stuff. It's, it's, it's the medium itself. It's the fact that it's pictures. It's the fact it's the color. It's the paper. And it's so baffling because he was clearly a, a brilliant guy. You know, this is the guy, this is a guy who pioneered everything from the study of the brain as an organ to being an expert witness and how myopic one smart person can be on the on a subject is kind of fascinating. Right. the The idea that comics as a as a medium are dangerous goes back to Sterling North. I've got his quote right here, which is pretty hilarious. Uh, badly drawn, badly written, and badly printed, a strain on young eyes and young nervous systems. Their crude blacks and reds spoil the child's natural sense of color. Their hypodermic infection of sex and murder make the child impatient with better, though quieter, stories. It was actually looking at pictures in a book uh, is what terrified these guys. The content seemed to come second. Warshaw in his essay and commentary, now what's interesting is that Warshaw didn't like comics either, but he certainly didn't like Wortham. Uh, and so he wrote an essay in which he sort of, he basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, Warshaw said about Wortham, he says that Wortham can't, you know, the, the Wortham's case is helped by the fact that adults that he and adults in general cannot conceive of what a good comic can be. You know, you, in that quote, you know, the, the advert badly comes out a lot, which, which implies, which would imply that there is a way to do comics. Well, you know, right. none, none of these people really, you know, they, they sort of let the idea of doing comics well or doing comics that, that could be a positive influence on people was just completely ignored, you know, like, it, it, you know, uh, it was inconceivable to them. We should point out that uh, Wortham's peers in general, found his his methods and his results uh, ridiculous. There was a lot of peer review that pointed out that his, yeah. his studies made no sense. Yeah, yeah. The, that's why he never bothered to... That's why Sort of from the Innocent is a, you know... <laughs> I almost want to call it self-help. It's the opposite of whatever self-help is. It's it's <laughs> self-abuse of comics. Right. It, it is It is not a uh, scientific text. And Wortham was definitely the witch finder general in these... in this, this mid... 
this this comics crisis. But let I mean, let us not forget that we we can we can demonize them all we want, and rightly so. The comics code ended up being a self inflicted wound by comics. Absolutely. You know? Uh, as we were saying, um, William M. Gaines followed Wortham at the, at the Senate hearing. Um, Gaines did not endear himself to the Senate because when they announced that they were going to conduct these hearings, he ran a house ad in his very popular, very well-selling comic titles that accused the Senate of anyone attacking the comic. The comic's interest in being a communist. Um, ironically, when applied specifically to Wortham, that actually was kind of pseudo-accurate. Right. But uh, the senators, in particular, did not take very kindly to this. It was, and, a, as you mentioned before, it was in the height of the uh, the Red Scare, and the title of the ad was "Are You a Red Dupe?" Yeah, and, yeah. and Gaines didn't even stop at printing in the comics. He actually sent this to Hendrickson's Senate office, leading Hendrickson to go to the Senate floor and denounce Gaines personally. Yeah. So Gaines was looking for a fight, and unfortunately for him, the senators were very much uh, ready to give him one. Gaines also spent, uh, was up all night, he'd been popping diet pills, he had stayed up all night to write a statement, so he was not in the best state, mental state, going into the hearings. He, he did fine if you, when you read on paper, but when you see the, the film of, the, uh, of his testimony, he does not come across all that well. Um, he ends up getting boxed into a very famous argument with... I think it might be Keith Alvar. I forget which one of the senators it is, but but uh, there's a famous uh, shock suspense stories. I think it is with uh, a woman who's been beheaded by an axe, and the guy's holding the the killer's holding the woman's head up, and so he gets by this, the uh, by the great Johnny Craig, by the great Johnny Craig, and so again, so Gaines gets into this silly argument over whether this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether or not selling comics magazines to children that have decapitated women on them is, is in poor taste or good taste, and just sort of not. Well, kind of argument you want to get into. You're right when you say he got boxed in because his initial argument that it's in good taste for a horror comic is perfectly legitimate. Sure. And and I mean, and while I think we can agree as as reasonable persons persons in the comic industry that it is in good taste for a horror comic, that is not the kind of argument the 1950s parents of America want to hear or or we're going to be particularly um, swayed by swayed by and talk about your peers not liking you <laughs> the comic book publishers really they didn't particularly like games before they certainly despised it now you know what i mean even though most of the country was getting the mccarthy hearings in televised the new york, the local new york um stations carried the comics hearings so everybody in comics saw this this exchange um the new york times ran on the front page on uh, below the fold with mccarthy above the fold you know, and so Gaines, the, the ironic thing is that the, the the story that came out of the of the comics hearings was not psychiatrist denounces comics. Number one, that was a very old story where they've been denouncing comics for almost a decade by the time they actually had the hearings. Uh, the, the new story that came out of the Senate hearings was, you know, comics publishers want to sell pictures of decapitated women to your children. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too? 
and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded, that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to robbery? And that's just part of the Senate testimony of William Gaines. He's the aforementioned publisher of EC Comics and Mad Magazine. Brad, do you want to talk a little bit more about the comic industry reaction to these hearings? Among the people who, who saw this on TV were, were Joe Simon Hill's historian, David Hodges' great book, The Ten Cent Play, that, that he and Jack Kirby were watching this on TV and flipped out when uh, Gaines started talking about decapitated heads. Uh, and were rightly so. Um, so everybody flipped out. Um, Gaines realized he screwed up and was very depressed. He said the one advantage that he had was that his the offices of EC were in Little Italy, and so the, the mobsters, who, whose restaurants he frequented, came out and expressed sympathy for him. Right. Uh, uh, you know, we, you know we, we went to these televised hearings, too. And, you know how it feels. Gaines had actually started a previous comics trade association. I want to say it was, I can't remember what the heck it was called. It was the Association of Comics Publishers. Publishers, I think it was, or comics magazine publishers, and it, it had an it had an in-house code. And this was when we've been a little sloppy in that in our conversation. And there were really two waves of major comics criticism. Uh, the first one was in the mid late '40s that involved crime comics, uh, and then there was the then Tales from the Crypt came along and became huge. It's a horror kind of supplanted crime comics. Right. So then. The, the horror comics was more of the focus of the mid-50s attack. Worthen did not help matters by referring to every kind of comic as a crime comic, which is very confusing and bizarre. Um, he even referred to romance comics as crime comics. Go, go try and figure that one out. Um, but the, but the, the in-house code of, uh, of the American Comics Magazine Publisher Association is hilarious because it's really long, and I just grabbed... Uh, uh, Amy Keisenberg's great book, Seal of Approval. So this is the this is from the Comics Code of 1948. This is the Association of Comics Magazine Publishers, uh, and it it contains it's very short. It's it's less than half, it's about a half page long, and it it says uh, things like uh, no comic shall show the details and methods of a crime committed by a youth. Okay, fair enough. We know where that that that's trying to deflect Wortham. Uh, but it also has things like slang should be kept to a minimum and used only when essential to the story. Like this is like if your poetry circle came up with a censorship. It's very it's lots of loopholes here. So, and my my absolute favorite one is is uh, oh no, there's also divorce should not be treated humorously nor represented as glamorous or alluring. Uh, the third one is my favorite because it says no scenes of sadistic torture should be shown. Not sadistic torture, only totally necessary torture. Right. Uh, so that was in 1948, but in 1955. Uh, and that association, no one joined Gaines' association except some of the crime publishers. The uh, Then this, this next time around, the comic publishers basically took Gaines' idea and ran with it, but they did it in a very selective way. The publishers that got together um, to form this new association were Dell, which, which, which published Disney, National, a.k.a. DC. Um, I want to say Harvey was a part of Archie was definitely a part of it. It was basically all the, the publishers who were already publishing material specifically for children. Dell, who famously had their own comics code, the Dell Pledge to Parents. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, Dell, in fact, was one of two publishers that never joined the Comics Code, uh, that never ran the Comics Code seal. The, the official um, Comics Code. So I guess we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves. So so they they met in this uh, old this hotel that's no longer uh, in Midtown called the Biltmore, and um, came up with this Comics Code that was sort of super restrict restrictive. You know, they, they you know forget not treating divorce humorously. You did not mention divorce. Forget. Uh, you know, not showing details of crimes committed by youth. You will not show the details of any crimes. Uh, forget statistic versus practical torture. You will have no torture or realistic violence. And they went beyond that uh, by banning words and titles like crime and terror and horror. In other words, 90% of the titles in William M. Gaines's catalog. So, it, it was wildly punitive. It was, it was yeah. apparent who they were targeting. Yes, and they basically wanted to run Gaines out of business. So Gaines did not go out of business because he turned mad the mad comic book, the parody comic, into a magazine, which meant he didn't have to carry the seal. So sorry, again, we're we're treating these things like everyone who's listening to this already knows it. But but uh, you had a very in addition to the uh, McCarthy-esque Wortham situation, you had another confluence of crap slamming of the comic industry at this point, which was that um, there was a massive antitrust suit against one of the major magazine distributors in the United States, uh, who also owned the most newsstands. So, so there was a there was a massive amount of uncertainty in the distributor market because this huge distributor is being broken up, and so there was there was uh, a lot of chaos going on, and so the the sales of comics just got wiped out, and many news dealers and many news distributors just wouldn't wouldn't take comics period and so there was a lot of fear in the industry so in order to placate both the public and the distributors they came up with this comics code this comic seal idea which is that you had this code of content that we were referring to earlier uh in order to prove that you um abided by that code you had the seal the stamp like a poster stamp slapped on on the cover of the comic um and unless you had that seal you were not going to be carried by a distributor and you couldn't get your product to market it uh a couple of the targeted publishers like uh crime does not pay tried to have its you know tried to have its cake and eat it too they tried to continue publishing crime does not pay but I mean, the, one of the last issues, the last issue of Grand Not Pay is hilarious because it's got this gigantic, it's got the largest seal. I don't know if you've seen this, Alex, but it's got the largest comics code seal I've ever seen on the cover. It was like, look, it's right here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they might as well just, they might as well just made the cover, the actual comic seal. Um. And so they, but they went out of business. Bill Gaines brought out sort of a prestige line of comics that weren't gory, um, that without the gore. An attempt to placate the code, but they bombed. Psychoanalysis. Bombed Psychoanalysis. Valor. Is my MD. Favorite. Valor is my favorite. Uh, uh, piracy. Piracy. Uh, Aces high. Aces high. Right. But were those the uh, the picto fictions? Uh no, I don't think so. I that was that. a whole separate thing. Yeah. Which, if anyone is listening, the picto fictions are beautifully illustrated it's where they started experimenting with ink washes and graphite tones and incredibly talented people do it working with new uh new tools well mad just got bigger and crazier and, and more innovative right um 
So uh, Wortham hated the comics code because he rightly pointed out that they just took all the stuff that was overt in the pre-code comics and sort of drove it even further underground, which to his mind was even more insidious. And so the kitty publishers, by forming the, uh, the Code Association and applying the Code of Conduct, also rubbed out all of their competitors. Right. Uh, except for this sort of consortium of, of well-known kitty publishers. Um, they nearly totally wiped out Marvel, which was called Atlas at the time. Uh, Marvel had to basically fire everybody except for Stan Lee. Um, apparently they had enough backlog. Like someone like Martin Goodman, who was the head of Atlas, discovered like a closet full of unpublished stories. And it was like, we can fire everybody. And it was, you know, it was just a total apocalypse. And it also came during a period when TV was getting very big. A lot of families were moving out of the city and into suburbs and driving everywhere. So they could not read during the commute. So it was just a real confluence of factors. And it came really... at the beginning of, of the youth culture emergence where sure. th- there was an enormous amount of movies that were targeting kind of teens, sure. uh, the, the explosion of horror movies and, and science fiction movies and, uh, and television, which, you know, suddenly there was a, an element of, of things for kids where, you know, prior to World War II, there wasn't necessarily a, a huge amount of culture directly targeted at a kid audience. Yeah, comics were, were just about had it. Much less com- had much less competition. Right. And now they went from a, a kind of Wild West environment uh, where they were very popular to a much more regulated. They got, they, they got really restrictive regulation at the same point they had the kind of commercial pressures that would force any other industry to innovate. In other words, the, at the exact point they needed to innovate, they became ultra-conservative and shut down. Right. And this is where we sort of have the stigma of we had a 50-year, 60-year, 70-year drought where comics were considered sort of subhuman, well, sub-adult literature. Sure, because they accepted that role that was put on them yeah. by the Senate. And by Wortham and just retreated. Uh, Mad went to a magazine size and went to newsstand distribution. And like you said, most of the publishers either that's when we get the Batman who's, you know, the Batmite era and the, you know, Batman in space wearing different color costumes. Sure. Uh, that's when Superman became some of the my favorite Superman stories, but definitely the silliest. Uh, well, Superman became a strip about. Superman not letting Lois Lane find out that he's Clark Kent. Like, that was the whole, really, existence of, you know... That... Lois, Lois Lane became the primary antagonist of Superman. And, <laughs> and Life on Krypton, where it's all about strange animals, and Jimmy Olsen turning into a giant turtle man, and uh, it, it was a, a very silly strip in a lot of ways. You had a situation where the publishers were no longer interested in you once you hit puberty. You know, there was nothing for you to keep you reading comics. You You just aged out. And since these folks were publishing Superman and Mickey Mouse, they really didn't care. Nope. And, you know, famously, that's when we get the Karl Barks duck stories and a lot of good material. Little Lulu sure. by John Little Stanley. Blue. Yep. Um, but that's absolutely the cream of the crop. That's just the the icing. The, the rest of the cake is pretty dire. Yeah. So, you know, you've got a situation where, you know, comics were sort of left to the dustbin of history if, if it were not for nerds, you know, and geeks and people who... The Misfits, who wanted to keep reading about Green Lantern, you know, 
Once the, they discover girls, or at least once they <laughs> and the EC to discover girls, EC fan addicts who were collecting the old EC comics and talking about them in fanzines. Sure, and Mad Magazine begat uh, Crumb and the Undergrounds to a certain degree. All the and stuff. Crumb and the Undergrounds begat Steve Gerber and uh, Steve Englehart and that yep. whole explosion at Marvel. And the long ma- march began, culminating in. Women being interested at bars when I tell them I write comics. <laughs> so, so you and and Ryan Dunlavy, your uh, kind of constant companion in this in this crazy industry, man wife. Yes, like exactly. Um, wife. Your your cartoon bride. Uh, you guys summarized all of this history, and was it thirteen pages? Uh, you and I just went a little bit further than we did, and we went. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, like thirty. There's a story of the uh, the CBLDF. Uh, reprint contains the heart of it, which is basically dealing with Mad and Wortham. Right. Uh, but then we do a little bit before and a little bit after. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good summary. It's it's very funny and it's very to the point and it's well researched as as we've just heard you discuss. And it's available um, in our free comic book day comics, to Defend Comics free comic book day edition. And it's also available in a collected edition, the comic book history of comics available from IDW Publishing. Thank you, Fred. Uh, I'm sure we will have another podcast in the future where we talk about your current work, not focusing on the 1950s. Sounds good, and I'll use more swear words then. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Fred. Thanks. I'd like to thank Fred for participating and being our guinea pig here on the first episode. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to continue the work that we do. Uh, You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and uh, clicking on the Donate Now uh, banner on the side. This podcast and all of our education work is made possible partially through support from the Gaiman Foundation and partially from support from listeners like you. Thank you very much.